Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. And we're back with another episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and welcome to another week of Talking Tennis. It was an Australian Open Week theme on Tennis Channel Live. We were delighted to be joined by several high-profile guests who saw their greatest triumphs in Melbourne. On Monday, we caught up with someone who hoisted the trophy twice down under, former world number one Victoria Azarenka. Vika discusses with Mary Carrillo and Brett Haber how she's been able to achieve such success in Australia, what her current career goals are, and the prospect of playing tennis without fans present. It's two-time Australian Open champion Victoria Azarenka on the TC Live podcast. Victoria Azarenka, back to TC Live. It's great to see you, Vika. Tell us how you've been uh, passing the time during this hiatus. I think we all assume it's been very Leo-centric. Are we right about that? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I've been, you know, trying to stay focused and trying to do my workouts and try to play tennis as much as possible, but it's such an unusual um, kind of feeling of staying at home after being used to travel so much. Even when I was a little bit away from tennis, I still did like a lot of things and I traveled a lot. And uh, now it's just like, it's like every day is kind of the same day. So you kind of lose the track. I keep my calendar, keep putting goals on the calendar just to make sure that I know which day of the week it is. Um, <laughs> it's 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 un, it's really unusual. I mean, it's the the motivation to like know what's coming next. We obviously nobody really knows yet, and try to get to stay informed as much as possible. But you know, this kind of unknown gives a lot of anxiety, and motivation kind of goes down. I got to assume it does. Also, you've got a toddler on your hands. I mean, Leo's only what three years old, and he I'm from what I've seen of your beautiful boy. He's very active. He's very busy. Perhaps just a little bossy too. I mean, how much of your life is just about, you know, who's handling the pandemic better, you or your son? Well, I feel like he's ready to like, also like get out of the house. Um, probably like see other people, not just me and like his, his father and also like the nanny and stuff. So yeah, I think he's ready to like see other kids um, because I can see how much fun he gets like interacting with somebody else on FaceTime rather than just us but he's you know he's it's kind of interesting to see his like daily changes even like it's been like one month just with him and like his competitive side starts to come out and I don't really know where it's coming from um (laughs) always wants to win like everything it's just impossible to play any kind of game with him if he doesn't win um so that's been a little bit of challenge for me because i like to win as well (laughs) and i have to pretend that i'm losing to him all the time so this drives me a little bit crazy 
to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. Uh, yeah, adjust and you have to sacrifice. So, uh, I'm I'm kind of sacrificing that. I'll bet you are. I want to go back to that, but I I you have to explain to me why you were so good in Australia. Why you wanted that major twice? Was it was it that you had just come off a training block? Was it the heat? Was it the court surface? Was it the that you you love playing in Melbourne? Why were you so good there? Well, I think the beginning of the season, the excitement is definitely one part of that. I felt that I've been, you know, kind of the most hungry and the most prepared in Australia. Um, and I, I really like the vibe there. I felt that, you know, um, I just felt like really good emotionally, physically there. Um, from the first time I came there, you know, it's like from the juniors. I, I, I came there for the first time. When I was a junior and I won, I won two tournaments. I was undefeated in Australia. So it, it it goes back like since I was 15. I think that feeling kind of when I came there for the first time, it kind of carried over the years. And, I, and, I, and I've been like trying to hold on to the same feeling, I would say. But I would say that the excitement of the beginning was always uh, kind of a trigger for me to be more hungry. We are joined on TC Live by former world number one, two-time Australian Open champion Victoria Azarenka. Vika, we're starting to see some exhibitions come back in Germany and then the end of this week in the United States with no fans. I wonder where you stand on the idea of playing with no fans. Some players seem to be okay with it and others can't really seem to imagine the sport without the energy that the fans provide. What do you say? Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure. Like. I think without fans to have that thrill and that motivation will be a little bit hard um, to reproduce that, you know, that battlefield, because that's, that's really what it's all about. I feel the best competitors that go out there is also, we're also entertainers. So we want to be in front of the crowd. We want to, you know, have eyes on us for that moment. So I think it's going to be a little bit, for me, it would be a little bit weird, but we also practice so much without anybody looking. So, um, you know, in terms of tennis quality, I don't think that that can change much. But in terms of like emotional and entertainment part, I think it's going to be kind of hard without, um, without the crowd. Once again, Vika, you sound like your boy, Leo. He wants to be out there and in front of other people. And it sounds like that's what, something you'd want as well. Um, has this pandemic, uh, well, and, and motherhood, how much has your life changed in the last several years in terms of priorities? I mean, can you see yourself playing past this pandemic? And do you care about winning and losing as much now that you've got a little boy at your side? Unfortunately, yes, I do care about winning and losing. And I say unfortunately because I sometimes wish I was a little bit easier to look on the brighter side and focus a little bit in the moment and not just on the result. But do I see myself playing after the pandemic? Hopefully. I mean, if, if it doesn't last for 10 years, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be able to play. Um, but um, sorry, what was the other part of the question? Yeah. How I, I mean, how much, how much yeah. does, uh, how much are you this as can you be as good as you were when you won two Australian Opens or has too much change, too much time gone on? Have your priorities shifted? 
Well, priorities definitely have shifted. Can I be as good? Um, I don't yeah. think that there's a right way to compare to what was before. I feel like we always kind of um, get better. Um, sometimes, you know, I feel like I have a lot more experience. And once I feel like I can find a little bit of a better balance, and, I, and that's something I've been working on, you know, in terms of my priorities. Because I keep feeling this guilt when I go out and play and uh, it's tough because I want to spend time with with Leo and I want to do a lot of different things. But at the same time, something inside me, I still want to play and I still want to compete. So I think the ba the key is here is, is to find that balance and it's something that I've never really been facing before. It's always been about me. It's always been, you know, um, what I need to do for tennis. And now I need to kind of juggle two different things so it's a little bit of a bigger challenge i would say than than before but i feel i can do it i wouldn't be playing if i didn't do if i was um i can still do you know better than i was before after becoming a major champion victoria azarenka spent 51 weeks at number one on the contrary caroline wozniacki had the top spot for 67 weeks prior to the 2018 season but had no grand slam titles to show for it while many in the tennis world wondered if her best tennis was behind her, Wozniacki dug deep and went on an improbable career-defining run, winning the 2018 Australian Open title. She joined TC Live this week with Brett Haber and Lindsay Davenport to recap that incredible championship run, discuss how she's adjusting to her recent retirement from the game, and how she plans to stay connected to tennis. Here's the always radiant Caroline Wozniacki. And we are very pleased to welcome Australian Open champion and former world number one Caroline Wozniacki back to Tennis Channel Live. Great to see you, Caroline. And it must be said, uh, you have impeccable timing, don't you, right? You, you picked the Australian Open to be the last tournament of your career, and then we don't really play any more tennis uh, much after that. How have you been passing the time during this crazy stuff? Um, honestly, uh, it's been, I've been enjoying myself just quarantining and, uh, enjoying my time with David, not doing a whole lot. I think as soon as I uh, retired, I had a thing for Discovery Channel, so I was gone for a month <laughs> traveling. And then as soon as I came back, I was like, for me, um, it's not too bad. We're just hanging out and, and relaxing. I'm baking a lot, gaining pounds, trying to lose them in the gym. So that's uh, basically our day. I think we saw on social media, were you stuck in Africa when the lockdown started taking place? And how did you get back to the States? Yeah, so we were in Africa for about three weeks or a month. And um, all of a sudden, everywhere was starting to, to close down. And by the time we were able to get to an airport, there was very few flights and every flight kept getting canceled. And um, there was just no way to, to get back until one opening through. We had to fly one place in Africa, then to Qatar, then to Chicago, and then drive five hours from Chicago. So we made it. So that was good. I had my masks and the gloves on, as you can see, and, uh, you know, just tried to stay safe. But, I mean, it took 10, 15 different flights because oh. every flight kept getting canceled. Oh, my gosh. Okay, going back to the 2018 Australian Open, and we'll talk about the final in a little bit, but kind of leading into the tournament, did anything feel different for you, or was there that extra bit of confidence, or did you kind of gain that during the tournament as it went along? Well, I think a few times in my career, I went into a tournament where I was like, I feel great, this is my tournament, and 
I feel like I have a big chance of winning it. And this was one of those times, but you know, the other times when I went into a grand slam feeling the same way, I'd, you know, lost later on or gotten unlucky or, you know, just not made it or, or gotten too nervous and, and then burned my chance. But this time, you know, second round, I'm down um, 5-1 in the, in the second round, 5-1 in, in the third set. And, and she had match points and serving for it. And, you know, I was already planning my vacation at that point. I was like, well, I guess it's not going to be my year, but somehow... I managed to turn that around, and after that, I just played with house money, basically. I think all the pressure just went away, and I was like, I have nothing to lose at this point. And I started playing really, really well uh, as the tournament progressed. And then going into the final, you had played in two Grand Slam finals before. Both were at the U.S. Open. Uh, what were the nerves like going into this particular final in Australia, and any what was the mindset going up against Halep? So I think my mindset, um, I was really nervous because I was playing early morning in my semifinals, and then I had a day and a half before I had to play uh, that finals. So the year in championships, and I'd beaten her easy. I knew that she's a tough competitor, and I knew it wasn't going to be easy in the finals. But I felt in my heart, I was like, this is mine to lose. You know, I felt like I, sh I in, my, in my head, I was like, I have to win this one. And what if I don't get another chance? This is my opportunity. Uh, the two other finals I played, I played against Serena, against Kleisters. And at the time, I thought I was the underdog. And here, I didn't feel like it. I felt like I really needed to win this one. So it made me really nervous going into the finals. But as soon as I stepped out on court, somehow the nerves just left. And I, I just went out there and, and fought for her. We're joined on TC Live by Australian Open champion, former world number one, Caroline Wozniacki. We, we want to take you back a couple of months ago to your final match of your career at this year's Australian Open. You made it to the third round, very respectable showing. You left a, lost a tough three-setter to Ohms Jabour, and then you had some very nice and very emotional moments on the court. What, what were your memories from that whole experience, and were you at peace at that moment with the decision that you'd made? I definitely was at peace with my decision. I think I've thought about it for a very long time and I knew that this moment was going to come. But I think in your head, you always plan all these things and what it's going to be like, but you have no idea until you're standing in that particular moment. And of course, it was, I think, a mix of emotions of, you know, I was proud, I was sad, I was happy, I was thrilled. Like, it was just a lot of emotions going through at the same time. But I mean, the crowd and the people really made that so special for me. And having my whole family there, having David there on the court, it was just really, really special for me. Well, that was about three months ago. Obviously, a lot has kind of changed in the world. But we were just curious what your plans to try and stay connected to our sport and any future plans, maybe not necessarily for this year, but moving forward uh, in regards to tennis. Um, I don't quite know yet. I obviously love the sport so much. It's given me so much in my life. It's given me a lot of friendship. It's given me, you know, just a lot. So I think I would love to do some TV eventually. Um, so I'll probably do that. I don't think coaching is for me because I know what to do, but I have a hard time expressing that to <laughs> someone else. And I think I get impatient. So I don't think that's for me. Uh, um, 
If you want to do some TV, I think we can all agree exactly. the audition right now is going very we well. We know who you should talk to. <laughs> um, by the way, we, we showed those, those great moments from your last tournament in Melbourne. Your second to last tournament was in Auckland, and you got to do something pretty cool that week, which is you got to play doubles with your good buddy Serena Williams, which I don't think you had done before at a pro event. What was that like? How much fun did you guys have that week? Oh, we had a blast. That was awesome. It's one of the most fun tournaments I've ever played. And when we're out there just talking about random stuff, we weren't even talking tactics on the court. We we're just having a blast. And we were like, why didn't we do this earlier? Why, you know, maybe instead Serena suggested, she's like, maybe you just come back for the rest of the year just to play doubles. We can play four tournaments this year. And and that should be it. And I go, I'm not going to be practicing just to play doubles. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to be practicing for this. But we really had a blast. We uh, we made it to the finals, which was great. So we got four matches or five matches out there. So we, uh, I really wish we had done that earlier. Well, Caroline, whenever you want to do some TV, we've got a seat reserved for you right here in our L.A. studios. It's great to chat with you. Stay safe, stay well, and, and we'll we'll see you soon, okay? Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Thank you so much. Another week of TC Live means another set of highly insightful and entertaining appearances by Andy Roddick. Joined by Lindsey Davenport, Paul Anacone, and Brett Haber, listen as Roddick breaks down the epic 2017 Aussie Open final between Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal, the historical ramifications of that match for the all-time rankings, and Serena Williams' major triumph that same year, while pregnant. It's Andy Roddick on the TC Live podcast. I'd say a, a commonality amongst a club player, a college player, a touring professional, the best players in the world, they all need reps. You need to get match tough. You need to actually play the game uh, under match circumstances to be at your best, uh, except for Roger Federer, <laughs> apparently. When you don't play a single tournament point from uh, Wimbledon of 16 to uh, the Australian Open 2017, you, you wouldn't put him as a favorite to win a tournament, but I guarantee you when he got there and saw that the courts that year were playing a little bit slick, he might be able to get away with some cheap points, play a little bit more aggressively. He had to uh, feel a little bit better. But to go through four top ten players, back-to-back uh, -back five setters and semis and finals, uh, I mean, what, what else do you say? Uh, you know, it was it was shocking. I was actually down there for, uh, I think, about 36 hours that year. And it was funny because the topic was, oh, gosh, if we could just get Roger versus Rafa one last time. And <laughs> here we are, you know, two or three years later, and we're still we still got him. So we should be thankful for that. Andy, one of the one of the challenging things I've always found with great players is that when you actually with all players, but when you have a little bit of doubt, it's tough to believe in big moments. And Rafa has created doubt in Roger's mind. And right before the match, about two hours before I asked Severn and Roger at lunch, I said, so what am I going to see today? And Roger said, I'm going to swing free. I'm going to step on the baseline and hit my backhand early. And I said, the whole time? He said, yeah, the whole time. And then all of a sudden at 3-1 in the fifth, he actually stayed with that even when down. How do you get that belief and how do you sustain it? 
Well, I mean, you, you know you know the patient better than I do uh, here. You've been in the locker rooms with Roger in those kind of intimate moments. But I, I have kind of a weird theory about uh, the, the way that the, the, the Federer-Nadal rivalry has shifted maybe post-prime of, of Roger. Uh, he used to have options, and he used to actually play. Uh, Roger actually used to play a lot of defense. People don't you know necessarily realize that, but he would kind of you know check back, put the ball in play, pick and choose his spots. Since he's maybe lost uh, a step, he doesn't play defense nearly as much. Therefore, his backhand has gotten better. Therefore, the the the, the shot pattern where Roth is consistently just peppering the backhand. He I call the get out of jail free card. You know, Roger can hit two or three good balls, and Rafa kind of just flips that one up, and Roger would get caught up here. That shot's gotten better by virtue of Roger not actually playing defense as often. So I, I think that rivalry has actually shifted a little bit, but. Um, you know, it, it is, it, no one's immune. I mean, we've seen uh, the, the, the great Serena Williams struggle in slam finals. So no matter how many times you've done it, the greatest thing about sports is you still have to prove it the next time. And, uh, you know, somehow Roger did in, in that final at 17 at the Aussie Open. You talked about the historical implications that this final could have. At the time, it was 17-14 Federer before the final, obviously after 18-14. How huge was this match? It, it was huge, and, and all of them are now. Uh, you, know, you know, at that moment, it was like I, I, I was saying that that could be the, the deal breaker, and that was before even Novak got into it. And then, you know, last summer might at Wimbledon might have been the deal breaker with the all-time lead. So all of these matches that that the big three are playing have ramifications past just that given match, and now past just that that given tournament. We've had uh, we, we've had players who have been playing the history books, but not all simultaneously against each other. So we've uh, we've had a spoiled uh, of riches for a long time. And oh, by the way, uh, a lady named Serena Williams is fighting the same battle on the women's side. So uh, I'd say we're, we've been pretty lucky as tennis fans. Yeah. Also that year, Serena uh, on the women's side goes on to win the title, gets to 23 and announces she was pregnant a few months later. I mean, how crazy is that, that she is still able to win a Grand Slam with all of that going through her mind? I mean, you would know I've never been pregnant, so you tell me how hard that is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing that Serena just does things with this certain, you know, dominance. It's like, okay, win the Australian Open, and then it's like an aside two weeks later, oh, by the way, and I was pregnant, so all of you just sit on that for a little while. I'm going to go away for a little bit, but I'll be back. <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's always amazing when we ch see what the great ones can do. And for Serena, it's been a little bit of a challenge. Has her challenge in your mind been mostly mental or physical lately? I, I think there's two things. I think you, there's such thing as wanting something too badly. Um, you know, and, and, and when you, she goes away, obviously has Olympia, comes back, you have to retrain everything. They're, they're, you know, even someone as great as Serena Williams still has to prove themselves every single time. And, and that, you know, I, I said it earlier when we were talking about Roger, but the same goes. And so you lose that first one convincingly, you lose a second one, then you're actually having to answer questions about it all the time. She doesn't get through an interview or a conversation now without someone bringing it up. So yeah, it gets kind of tucked back uh, in your mind a little bit. But the, the, the one thing that I've seen uh, post comeback with, with Serena was she used to be able to depend on her serve to get her out of jams a lot. And in those finals, I, I, and without even looking at the statistics, so maybe I'm dead off, but it's just the, kind of a, an eyeball judgment here. Her first serve percentage, she's been missing them in bunches, right? So if she misses two or three first serves in a row, someone else is getting rhythm and she's having to play more rallies than she would normally want to. Uh, you know, So I, I would like to see that first serve percentage go up a little bit 
that, that that's almost medicine for being a, a little bit tight if, if that first serve percentage comes up a bit. There's been some highly entertaining moments in the 2020 tennis season, but only one person brought something from the breakfast table directly out onto the court. Vasek Pospisil, a Canadian, I might add, decided to chug some maple syrup for a boost of energy in one of his matches in February, and as you know, the thing took off and went pretty viral pretty fast. He joined TC Live with Paul Anacone and Brett Haber to discuss that moment, what he's doing in the midst of the shutdown to stay active, and what it's like to be a member of the ATP Player Council amid some turbulent times. Here's Vasek Pospisil on the TC Live podcast. Vasek, great to see you. Tell the folks where you are and how you've been dealing with this uh, incredible crisis that we've all been enduring. Yeah, uh, I'm in Vancouver. I'm, I've been uh, I've been pretty lucky. The weather has been pretty amazing here. The lockdown has, you know, it's been tough, uh, you know, around the world. But I think it's been a little bit, a little bit easier here. We we're actually able to get out and, and go on bike rides, and they just opened the golf courses and tennis courts the other day. So uh, there are definitely worse, you know, worse places to be than Vancouver right now. Vasek, I want to talk to you a little bit about your kind of reemergence. You, you had a big splash a few years back. Then you had to deal with some injuries, the ranking drop. Then you went on a big run, some great challenger results, getting to the finals of Montpellier. But basically, if memory serves me, you kind of blew up the internet with the whole kind of uh, maple syrup chugging situation. <laughs> How did that come about? And, and uh, what's the root of all that? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I get, uh, this is like the first question I get anytime I speak to anyone. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I've had a lot of people uh, come up to me and say, oh, you know, that must have been orchestrated. Like, you know, did you do that on purpose? And to be honest, like, I didn't at all. So the, the, the story behind it is that I, I, ha- I was in France, I was in Montpellier, and I had a really brutal match with uh, Goffin in the semifinals. Uh, it was like over three hours, super physical, as it usually is if you play David. And and I went through like 10 energy gels and I went through all, like all, I ran out of energy gels. So I was like, okay, no problem. The next day I was, I was in the final, I was playing Gael and, and I just said, okay, like I'll just go to the, to the pharmacy and get some energy gels, but everything is closed in France on Sundays. So we couldn't get anything for the last match. And then sort of just brainstorming with my physio, like, what am I going to do for energy? And then, and then it was like, oh, well, I could just use my maple syrup because I travel with it. And I, I, use it religiously and then and so then i was thinking well should i put it in a bottle you know i was like no it's just gonna get messy because i'll have to pour it back if i don't use it i was like i'll just drink i'll just drink straight out of the the maple syrup uh, bottle and then i didn't think anything of it until it actually exploded after the match i realized it was it was pretty hilarious but i didn't didn't really think much of it (laughs) we we loved it we got a lot of good mileage out of that but i i for one i prefer it on my pancakes myself but i'm i'm gonna have to (laughs) give it a try Steve Weissman did it in studio in your honor after that tournament. So you did get a lot of traction with that. There's a lot of uh, a lot of American fans out here wondering about the double situation. Will you and Jack play again at all? We all loved watching you guys play together. Will you guys play it all together when things get going again, you think? Uh, we will. Uh, I think we will. We we actually intended on reuniting at uh, Indian Wells in Miami before the before the lockdown, before the coronavirus kind of uh really you know took off and um so i think just for now it's just postponed you know i think we've been talking for a couple of years to play again i mean my singles ranking had dropped i was really focused on on getting that back up um haven't played very much doubles the last few years but but we'll definitely play uh at some events coming up wherever that is i'm not sure but i think it'll just be a little bit uh sporadic our schedule will be our double schedule might be sporadic but we'll, we'll play a couple events for sure 
We're joined by Vashek well, Pospisil here on Tennis Channel Live from Vancouver, Canada. Vashek, um, as you know, uh, there's been quite, quite a bit of chatter the past couple of weeks about the potential of a, a merger between the ATP Tour and the WTA. As a guy who has a significant voice in the governance uh, of the ATP member of the Player Council, etc., uh, very curious for your thoughts on, on all of that chatter. Yeah, well, I don't know if a significant voice, you know, I just try to try to represent the players that I'm supposed to represent uh, being on the council. I don't know how much true influence I have, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, th this came to our attention um, several months back. I think it, it was in, in January, the Aussie Open, our, our new uh, ATP chair, chairman and, and uh, CEOs, Andre Gaudenzi and Massimo Calvelli, they, they approached the council with, with a, a whole new vision that they were uh, working towards. And one of the, the aspects of that, um, you know, included the possibility of, of a merger with the WTA. And obviously, you know, it's not so simple to just uh, give a, some, you know, a statement like that without getting into details and understanding how that would work. But they've obviously thought through the whole process and they have, they had great answers to everything, every question that, that we'd pose. So that seems to be the long-term vision of theirs that they brought to the table. And then they've been working extremely hard on um, the last four months. Well, you know, at least until the the until crisis management now, which is you know unfortunate for them because they they right now I, I can't imagine how stressful and how much they're, they're dealing with with this crisis and they've done an incredible job. Like I, I I tell everybody that I speak to that we're tennis is very fortunate right now to have uh, leadership uh, the leadership that we do. They're very capable, very intelligent. They're really looking at it. tennis as a business and uh, you know not politics. And I think that's that's the kind of leadership that you need. Um, so uh, I, I just—it's just unfortunate that they have to deal with the crisis rather than, than um, you know, using their their very competent and capable hands to to improve uh, the sport and and kind of you know take tennis to the next level. You know, it's been interesting, Basak. I got to hear uh, Andrea Gaudenzi's vision. I've known him for a long time, and and very enlightened, bright guy. A lot of really uh, intellectually spot-on marketing ideas about trying to unite and capitalize on making the brand and the product better. Um, and in many ways, you're in an unenviable situation where you have to take his message and then disperse it to the general membership that you represent. How has that mm. gone? What generally is going through the conversations? What's the read on your your part? Well, well, it's difficult. I mean, uh, they're just like anything, whenever you bring a well, I wouldn't call it well, you know, a drastically new approach, or you're really trying to change something in a big way. There'll there'll be guys that support that, and and there'll be the more conservative that are against. And so I think I think the the messaging has been relatively mixed. I've I've got a lot of different different viewpoints and different feedback from all kinds of players. Uh, the, the I think the true difficulty um, in my position, you know, when I'm relaying this information or these decisions that are made to to the players is that. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have all the information that they need to to really even come up to to come to their conclusion or their opinion on the matter. And, and the problem is that I don't even have some of that information. And the information that I do, a lot of that is confidential, so to speak. Right. That's one of the things of being on the council as well. You can't actually, you know, just speak openly about everything that happens internally. So um, that's that's kind of the challenge that 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 uh, some of the council members face, including myself. And um, so. You know, the best I can do is say, hey, listen, you know, we've asked all the tough questions. They've given us great answers. Uh, they're very, you know, uh, smart guys. And, and you got to give them give them a chance to 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 reach a, the goal and the vision they have. And, and it's just it's just difficult to really 
uh, have a strong opinion when you don't have all the information. You know, that's that's the yeah. main the main takeaway. Yeah, it's got to be so challenging. Back in the dark ages, I was on the council for a number of years and also the board. So I've lived in your shoes. The one good thing for me is I didn't have to do it during social media. So it's very challenging. <laughs> yeah. It's very challenging because right oh, now man. so Tell much stuff it. flying around. <laughs> yeah. And and as a council member, how do you decide what you're going to put out on social media, what's okay and what isn't? Like what adds to the fire and what actually educates? Mm. How do you decide that? Yeah, I mean you it's a learning process for sure. I mean, I've made some 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 mistakes that I that I learned from. I mean, ultimately, I mean the code that I go by is is uh is, you know, I uh, I feel like if there's a message that's not out there that should be in some way, then then I try to, you know, maybe maybe uh reveal my opinion if it's if it's something that's not really heard that that's out there. I mean, mainly is is I'm just very honest and straightforward and I stand I'm very, you know, I stand by my values and principles and beliefs and I and I'm not shy to express those even if there are people that that might disagree. Um I mean, the main thing is it, it they come from a good place. I mean, especially with my role on the council. Um I mean, I'm not getting paid. I have zero incentive to spend, you know, in terms of financial or benefit or some kind of a an agenda to, you know, there's there's no agenda other than trying to look out for 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 the players. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the main thing I would tell tell guys that disagree with me um you know and because that you know there's differences of opinion that's for sure but there's no reason to get emotional about it if, especially if you're if you're just trying to um you know change things for the better Vashek, uh, thanks a lot for chatting with us uh do stay safe and i heard you're going for a bike ride in vancouver today yeah Ma make sure you make sure you bring your maple syrup <laughs> to stay hydrated <laughs> exactly. I actually have. I actually have. I got. I got some maple syrup, like these little energy gels that some companies have been sending me. So I'm going with maple syrup in my bike rides. Fresh off his 2020 Australian Open quarterfinal run, Tennis Sanger joined TC Live this week with Brett Haber and fellow Tennessee Volunteer alum Paul Anacone to discuss how he's able to have success in Melbourne. Two times in the last three years, he's made the quarterfinals there. And yes, he also discusses trying to get over that excruciatingly painful loss to Roger Federer in the quarterfinals, as well as working with American coach Michael Russell. It's Tennis Sanger now on the TC Live podcast. Thanks for joining us, first of all. Uh, Tennis, I know that you were very excited to play in that UTR Pro Match Series exhibition that's starting tomorrow yep. down in Florida, but you, you came down with an injury. Tell everybody, A, how you're doing, and B, how hungry you've been to, to get back on the match court. Yeah, um... I'm doing good. I was excited to go play. I wanted to go play really badly. Um, I'd be excited to go play in anything right now, but the UTR event looked really cool. And unfortunately, I tweaked my knee somehow in the gym uh, Monday night, but it's doing okay, but it's just not ready to play on Friday. So I had to give up my spot, but um, it should be an awesome event. That's, that's one of the challenges, isn't it? Tennis with this much of a downtime for you guys is you don't know when the starting line is. How are you kind of periodizing your training, tennis? S and C, that kind of stuff. Yeah, not playing a whole lot of tennis a couple times a week. Uh, just spending a lot of time in the gym, trying to stay fit, uh, trying to stay active. Uh, go outside on occasion. It's a nice day here in Tennessee. Um, you know, just try and like balance having a decent lifestyle as far as just being active and actually getting productive work work in in this down period. You know, we've seen so many good results with you. What is it with you in Australia? You just love it. How, why, how, how is that such a catalyst for you? Why do you play so well there? I don't know. I mean, the, the first time seemed kind of 
out of nowhere. And then I had to defend a bunch of points uh, <laughs> the next January. So I, I was really focused in my training going into January 2019 and had a good tournament in Auckland. And then the same kind of thing this year where it's like, okay, I'm trying to defend 250 points. So let's train as hard as we can in the off season. And uh, I don't know, it's just kind of built uh, year after year so far. So three years in a row, I've had pretty good starts down there. Yeah, you played you played such great tennis down there. This year was spectacular stuff. And look, we all know that it's very challenging when you have opportunities and lose. And as a former player and a coach, I believe in the progress through pain situation. And unfortunately, you lived that after playing a great match against Roger and just coming that close and not getting over the finish line. When you look back now, what do you take away from that match after after the emotions gone away? Uh, is the emotion gone away? It... <laughs> that sounds cool. Can we can we get to dissipated, that part? Uh... dissipated, dissipated? No, I mean, I, I mean, it's it was a great, you know, it was a great experience. It was a great match. Um, it didn't work out, but I did a lot of good things, and and it was a great great experience, and played well. Uh, I think I win that match in that situation nine out of ten times. It was just that that unfortunate time where it didn't didn't work out for me, but. Um, you know, I take a lot of good things from it, for sure. We're joined by two-time Australian Open quarterfinalist Tennis Sandgren here on TC Live. Tennis, you said something after your 2018 run in Australia that really stuck with me. You said that you were very aware that it could all end for you really soon because if you didn't defend those points, you knew that you might have to go back to the challengers. And I remember you saying that that was the reason that you were playing Monte Carlo that year because you wanted to experience and see the tournament that you'd never played before. I wonder now, a couple of years down the road, do you feel more secure that, that you're here to stay and, and not worrying about stuff like that? Uh, I feel slightly less secure right now since there's no tournaments at all. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely can't say you're sitting on my on my uh, chair here at home for the last three months and I feel super secure. Uh, but it, for career-wise, yeah, for sure, for sure. I feel like uh, I've been able to kind of ride these waves of, of points and you know keep my ranking in a place where uh, I'm able to keep playing Grand Slams and keep playing ATP tournaments, and and that's that's what I'm trying to do. Tennis, I got to spend some time with your coach down in Australia, uh, Mike Russell, and we got to chat. And I've, I've known Mike for a while. I think he's one of the best in the business. He was so high on how well you've been playing before the tournament. What's that relationship been like, and how have you managed it in this time? Um, he's been tr trying to keep up with what I'm doing. Uh, you know, the the, the the relationship has been great uh, for for you know the periods of time where the, where we've actually had a tour. Um, we've done really well together and, and he's helped my game a lot and he's helped my mentality. And, um, I like to think that he's also pushed my fitness up, a, up a notch just so that, you know, I have to stay in shape as in shape as him. I mean, he's working out twice a day. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's probably in better shape than 80% of the, the tour players right now. Um, so that puts a lot of pressure on me as the player that I, I don't feel good about my coach being in better shape than me. So I <laughs> try, try to try to stay in the gym. Um, and you know, he's just trying to keep tabs on me right now and making sure that I'm, uh, doing the right things and keeping my body healthy. Uh, unfortunately I wasn't able to do that going into this event, but, uh, you know, he's, he's doing a good job despite the fact that we haven't been able to work together, uh, yet in this down period. Well, fortunately and unfortunately you have some time to heal, so you'll be fine. 
Uh, Mike's right. been the iron, our, our tennis is iron Mike for such a long time. The fitness level is a joke. And I was wondering if you guys do have any contests. We saw <laughs> this on the internet yesterday. I'm waiting to see the tennis Sandgren version I, I, of the little, I don't know what he was. Thing. Honestly, I don't know what he was doing. Uh, posting this. First of all, I think he's lost his mind. I mean, you look at the video and that doesn't, that doesn't look like a sane man to me. It looks like a guy who's on the edge right now. Um, secondly, I, there's, I'm not doing that. Okay. Like that's like, that's, that's an embarrassingly strong feat of strength to go to do this and hit ping pong balls. I don't know who's feeding him the balls. I don't know, you know, what's going on here, but all I know is it's really difficult to do what he's doing right now. Uh, he looks like he's having a great time. Um, you know, I'm not about that right now. I'm not I, trying to do that. Honest, <laughs> honest confession, tennis. That video is looped. He didn't just do this for like two minutes straight. So he probably loop. could. Okay, I don't. I don't think it doesn't need to be looped. I was thinking to myself when I saw this. I'm like, what am I supposed? What are we going to do? The backflip challenge? Like, if somebody challenges you to a backflip. It's like I'm not doing the backflip. I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and just pass. Thank you, though. Thank you for the challenge. I appreciate it. Uh, so I, I, while I'm impressed with my coach here. Uh, no, I, I decline. Thank you. Uh, fair enough. Um, we, we all know that you are a very proud uh, Tennessee volunteer, and so we wanted to show a photo of you from your uh, easy, Paul. We wanted to show a photo of you from your college days. But who's that other hey. guy? Who's that other hey. guy on the left? Hey. That Brad, would be uh, the much better looking uh, Paul Anacone. <laughs> It's, How about the tight shorts, Tennis? How about the tight shorts and the high socks? I want to bring. I want to bring it back. I want to bring back the tight shorts. Honestly, I, I like it. I like the. I like the look. I don't know about the mohawk by me. Um, <laughs> I like that. You know, you know. I I went through a lot of uh, clay mold that semester. Let's put it that way. Is, is Paul Re- is Paul nice revered as the legend that we all think he is down in in Knoxville? He is. He is a legend. I mean, he's a legend everywhere he goes. So, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> Knoxville, oh, no. Paris, Melbourne. It doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's, tennis, he's a legend. Tennis, uh, tennis, I'll be having you reach out to my children after this so you can relay that uh, message. My, 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 Venmo, my Venmo account is my email address. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's true, though. It's true. I don't lie. I don't lie. It's true. Tennis, it's great catching up with you. Stay safe, stay healthy. Hope your knee feels better, and we look forward to Thank seeing you. you back on the court in uh, in happier times. Thank you, you guys as well. It's good to see you both. Take care. Take right care, on. man. The final stop on the TC Live podcast checks in yet again with Andy Roddick as he answers the tough questions in the world of tennis. Just how would he change the scoring, and what rule changes could make the game better? And what does he think about the new safety measures in place for these exhibitions as tennis tries to reopen and restart? Andy Roddick has the answers to the questions you need on the TC Live podcast. Andy rejoins us, and uh, you said you would take it even farther than the let rule. So uh, go ahead. What else would you change if you uh, had a magic wand? Well, I, 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 I do love the shot clock. Uh, I, I, it would be more kind of the experience around tennis. Uh, you do a timeout in a basketball game, and there's constant entertainment, right? There's there's T-shirts being shot into into the crowd. There's, there's something. If you, you can go to other sporting events and not be – a fan of the sport and still have a great time. Whereas tennis, I think it requires an intimate knowledge. So I would actually play to uh, the mainstream fan and, and, and kind of hope that tennis experts would, would stay with us, with us, which I think, uh, which I think they would uh, from a policy standpoint, I don't know how we, the, the players with all the talk of unionizing and raising funds or whatever, haven't tried to get uh, a piece of merchandise sales uh, at, at tournaments. I'm not sure how that has, hasn't happened yet. And that seems like low hanging fruit to me. So you think, in in your opinion, you try to urge the players to figure out 
the vendors at the sites and they participate in that. How about yep. jerseys? What about jerseys for players with their names on the back? Or we talked, they talked about that years ago. Jerseys could be, get counterproductive just because then they won't, they won't be able to actually sign their own endorsement deals. Now how the crossover with whoever makes the jerseys versus whoever you're paid to wear. But as far as just, I mean, they, they, they sell a hot dog for $18 at the U S open. Like can we, can we, get a, <laughs> we get a dollar for every hot dog. Um, you, you know, so I, I think, there are creative ways to to tap into revenue sources that already exist, as opposed to uh, as opposed to having to reinvent the wheel. All right, let's uh, tap into Andy's knowledge with some of the current events that are unfolding around the tennis world. And, and just this morning, we saw the conclusion of the first sort of pandemic era exhibition at the Tennis Point Club in Germany. Obviously, no fans, no lines, people, no ball kids, players coming on wearing masks, all kinds of social distancing and sanitizing. Um, you know, we don't know how long this is going to be the reality of tennis can you see this being the new norm andy well you know you, you'll eat a lot of things you wouldn't normally eat if you're really hungry um you know so <laughs> you know this this is fine and it, it's it's cool to get some coverage and you know i i think the market of of, of players ranked between 100 and 400 in germany has never been hotter by virtue <laughs> of um but is, is this a long-term solution I, I i don't know um you know, I, I, I do kind of like it feels like a bit of a throwback to the old club tennis days, which I've, I've heard about and people talk about so fondly. So it's it's great for now. But uh, unfortunately, I feel like it's a, a little bit of a Band-Aid on on surgery situation. Yeah, I, you know, I think that you're spot on. I think this is, personally, I think this is a short term uh, solution. Yeah. You know, we're we're hungry for sports. This is a great thing for us to take a little bit uh, of a reprieve from the oppressive real world of what's going on with COVID-19. So for right now, it's great. I, I can't imagine it being sustaining because of the commercial needs and whatever, but I think there's going to be a new normal. I think there's going to be a new normal, and I think we're going to have to be patient, but we need the new normal to be safe. We need to be smart. But you're right. The um, the market value of some of those players in Germany between 200 and 600 pretty good now. Well, I the other, the other thing I think is smart is, is you get a guy who is entertaining, has played some big matches on center court at Wimbledon. D Dustin Brown, you start pumping him. He's, he's like the coolest looking guy I've ever seen in my life. Uh, trick shot, you know, he, he's the guy who, you know, you don't see a lot of the times. And then all of a sudden he enters the dunk contest and he's the most amazing dunker you've ever seen in your life. So uh, kudos to them for finding someone they can actually market uh, th this, this platform around. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it, – sorry, my son's trying to walk in the door. Um, Let him. But uh, it, it's great. It's great for now. You know, I, I'm glad we're getting to see some, some what's essentially paid practice. Uh, I'm curious. What I want to see is how people are going to watch this, digest it, take it, and approve upon it. Maybe we get to see Rafa when he starts training again versus someone else and get to kind of dissect how they go about their training and why they do uh, certain things the same and why they would do certain things differently. That would be interesting to me. And that's it for this week's episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Special thanks to all the guests that took time to be on the show, as well as everybody working behind the scenes. Go to tennis.com slash podcast for all the episodes of the show and catch us on every podcast platform. We're here to serve you. We're here to give you the tennis that you want. Next week, the 10 part one, a nice series Tennis Channel puts on with special guests throughout the week. There will be another episode of the TC Live podcast, so don't you worry. And all this weekend in Florida, the reopen tennis exhibition starting in America. Major sports are slowly starting to come back. And Tennis Channel is proud to be a part of that. I'm Mitch Michaels, and this was the TC Live Podcast. We'll see you next week.